Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be discussing a problem, perhaps the biggest problem in making sense of Islam. And that is, how is it that there seem to be so many different versions of Islam being practiced around the world? Indeed, how is it that Muslims themselves still seem to be able to recognize other Muslims as being Muslim when they seem to be practicing and often believing quite variable and often very distinct, perhaps even competing things. Usually in Akbar's chamber, as regular listeners will know, we'll be discussing a particular regional type of Islam, a particular topic, a particular series of teachers that have emerged from a different corner of the Muslim world or a different time, whether the medieval or the modern era. We might talk about the Adami traditions of Africa, by which Muslims wrote down Islamic teachings in their own African languages. We might talk about the Sufi masters of Afghanistan or Central Asia, or indeed the anti-Sufi Islam of modern Salafi reformers. What we're going to be doing in this episode, though, it's stepping back from those particularities, or perhaps better, looking above and over, taking the big picture across these particularities and differences, and trying to understand how we make sense of this problem. But there are, in fact, invisible, observable fact, so many different varieties of Islam. Indeed, as some observers would say, so many different Islams. But nonetheless, believers themselves, however critically, will nonetheless recognize other Muslims as being part of the same religion. Well, fortunately, a new book has been published that addresses this issue fair and square. The author is Professor Kevin Reinhardt who's an associate professor of religion at Dartmouth College. And the book he's written, the ideas of which we'll be discussing today, is called Lived Islam, Colloquial Religion in a Cosmopolitan Tradition. It was published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Kevin, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Glad to be here. Well, over the past, what, 25 episodes or so of Akbar's Chamber, I've had many conversations with scholars, specialists on many different regions of the Islamic world and many different versions or expressions of Islam. Some scholars might even say many different Islams. So I thought at this point, it would be so useful to try to get some kind of framework, some means of understanding all of this plurality, this difference, this uh, multitudinous, if there's such a word, of Islam or indeed Islams. And, and you've written such a fascinating book precisely trying to 
uh, understand this this problem of how we make sense of this multiplicity of expressions of, of Islam. So, Kevin, perhaps you can start us off by more clearly defining this problem that we face in understanding Islam, at least understanding Islam as outside observers, or perhaps even as practitioners, as Muslims. So what is the problem we face then when discussing and trying to understand Islam? Well, we use the word Islam in a kind of casual way. And if you look at something like the first encyclopedia of Islam, it seems to be every single thing that Muslims do, geography, language, literature, sociology, culture, and so on and so forth. Um, but it has a heavy uh, Middle Eastern bias there. And again, the reasons for this are much discussed, but the result is that, um, you know, people who want to do, let's say, Indian Islam find it harder to find a job than somebody who works on Egypt. Um, and as you know, I've had the good fortune to travel a, a lot uh, in Islamdom and uh, recognize that what I learned in Egypt, for example, did not apply in a straightforward manner to Turkey, let's say, or to uh, Yemen or to Kazakhstan or something like that, or something like that. So um, there was that. And then I attended a conference with some Soviet scholars who'd been involved in the Soviet project in Afghanistan, which is a euphemism, of course. And um, they were all experts on things like Baghdadi uh, economics in the 13th century and uh, things like that. And yet they were the ones guiding the Soviet Union in its uh, invasion occupation of Afghanistan, which was not wildly successful. But they seemed perfectly convinced that their expertise applied to uh, the contemporary world and to parts of the world that they were not theoretically experts in. So. That was the first occasion where I began to try and think through um, what knowing about Islam is actually knowing, right? What is it that you know when you know about Islam? What is it that you're talking about when you talk about Islam? And I came to gradually feel that uh, the way in which it was done, certainly when I studied, and, and in many ways, the way it's done commonly now, was simply off base, it, it misled. And, and, and I include myself that when I taught Intro to Islam that I was misleading my students. So I decided that there were four or so fundamental mistakes in the study of Islam and I identified them as two varieties of essentialism and uh, a couple of other approaches that we might call parochialisms. Um, the first is simply if you do a search of book titles, you'll find that the commonest book title, especially in the early period of Islamic studies, is um, Islam and X. And the and, of course, is the interesting part because it links all sorts of things that you wouldn't, if you did Christianity and oil, for example, that would seem absurd. But Islam and oil is a fairly common topic. Um, and so the first essentialism is to assume that there is this thing called Islam, um, which is uh, always and everywhere the same and which is profoundly influential in all the same ways on the people who follow it. And um, sort of you've done, you've done the job when you've said that they're Muslims. Uh, the second kind of essentialism was more characteristic of colonial administrators, and that was the Islam in Islam in Ethiopia, Islam in, and they were very often 
colonial possessions, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, that too tended to privilege the local um, and see Islam as this perfected object that was out there somewhere that would be brought in bit by bit. And gradually, the assumption was that Ethiopians or um, Nigerians or, you know, whatever, would eventually become just like the real Muslims who were the Egyptians or the Syrians or the Iraqis. Um, so that, you know, was my sort of way in, and I began dismantling that. Uh, along some time in the process, I was exposed to a notion that became quite fashionable in anthropology, which is the Islam's approach. And that, it seemed to me, uh, was profoundly misleading because, uh, I mean, in many Islamic languages, you literally couldn't say Islams. There's no grammatical form. It means nothing to Muslims. And so this seemed to me to be um, typical of the anthropological move to say that what matters is my little, you know, 50 miles and, and my little 50 years. And to hive that off and separate that from everything else. Whereas the reality is that Muslims from your little place, if they meet Muslims from some other little place, tend to recognize each other as Muslims. And how is it that they recognize? How do they signal in a way that's meaningful the fact that they're Muslims? And finally, now the, I think the, the fashionable approach is the discursivists who describe Islam as, as, a, as, a, as a discourse following Tal al-Assad and his, I think, quite brilliant uh, article toward an anthropology of Islam. But if you pay attention, it is really about discourse that, they're, that they are focused upon. And discourse is something that elites do. It's something that you find in books. It's something that you find uh, in talking down to people and explaining why they're insufficiently Muslims. And Assad has said, frankly, that it it is a form of essentialism and people need to recognize that some things have essences. Well, the metaphysics of essences, it seems to me is, is a problem. Uh, and what's particularly a problem is that this dismisses out of hand all of the people that are not um, scholars, ulama, right? The, the official Muslims. So that also left me cold. And so uh, the critique then, um, pushed me to try and um, consider you know, what the term Islam should mean. And for me, the one thing that you can't avoid, although there's, uh, there are a number of books about Islam that I think try and play this down because out of embarrassment, I think. But the fact is, I think that the term Islam separated from a term like religion is just a mistake. Now, we all know that I think by now that religion is not a native term. It's, it, there was no term in the pre-modern period that really mapped onto the word um, uh, religion in most religious traditions, uh, arguably including Islam. And, uh, but nonetheless, it's a term of art in the academy. And so we have a general kind of vulgar notion that Islam is something that is connected to transcendence. Um, whatever that means, we, we sort of have a rough and ready understanding of, of the term. And so uh, I want to insist that the term Islam needs to be connected somehow to notions of transcendence. And here I would follow uh, uh, Bruce Lincoln who defines religion as uh, a, a discourse that concerns uh, with concerns that transcend human temporal 
and contingent notions, uh, a set of practices, a community whose members construct their identity with reference to the religious discourse, and institutions that regulate religious discourse practices and community. So those, this is in uh, Bruce Lincoln's uh, book, Holy Terrors. And I think it's a good and useful, uh, sufficiently broad, but also it makes it clear that we're the ones who are creating this term, that this does not necessarily uh, identify something that, in other words, it's an etic term, not an emic term. It's something uh, that the outsider could use, but it doesn't necessarily reflect the way insiders talk about themselves. So I wanted then to start with those as my premises, the critique of essentialism and elitism, and also um, the, the notion that we can't, we can't dismiss or decenter the, the religious part uh, of Islam, um, while yet you know, paying homage to the truth, which is that Islam is, anybody knows this who travels, Islam is quite various from place to place and time to time. And that's um, something that you just cannot deny as a scholar. So that was kind of the starting point. Well, that's really helpful, Kevin, because I think there's a, I think, it, I hope it's very helpful for our listeners as well, because the fact of the matter is for, for scholars, who are, whether they are working from the, let's say, the, the ethic tradition, as we say in the social sciences, the externalists, mm -hmm. not actually necessarily or at all being practicing Muslims, but looking from the outside, or indeed emically, whether Muslims themselves from the inside are traveling around the Islamic world, we recognize there is this great variety. And that's a, an intellectual problem, it might be a theological problem, it's a social scientific problem, it's, it, it's really a problem. And, and I think when we acknowledge that, you know, I think that that's really extremely helpful because unless we acknowledge that problem, we can't find solutions to, to our understanding. And, and you've raised a, a number of, of, uh, of, of key terms, really, in the sort of the discussion by scholarly experts who we, we have in Agbar's chamber. Um, the issue of essence and essentialism, of Islam's in the plural, of discourse and, and and a solution you, you've offered, or at least something that hasn't been perhaps, uh, you've argued, discussed enough, transcendence. And just for just sort of recap for, for listeners, essentialism is really the, the, the notion that, that there is one thing called Islam and it has an essence that is unchanging anywhere you might go, except that the problem is, as we've seen, when everyone might go, Islam on the ground is very different. So that creates the problem that you, you've argued, the conceptual problem that these must be deviations from some real essence that perhaps isn't really visible anywhere. And that's an issue, of course, that emically or ethically, social scientific scholars or indeed Muslim scholars, ulama, have, have faced that, that issue as well. And uh, one of the weird things is that in the defense of this essentialism, you find a whole literature, I have a whole file of academic scholars, no doubt, you know, Protestants or, or Jews or Catholics or the unchurched, saying this thing that Muslims do, thinking it's Islam, is not really Islam. It's not the real Islam. And, uh, you know, as, as you know, Zane pointed out, this is just so weirdly theological. How odd to think that, you know, an anthropologist or a political scientist or a, even a religionist sitting in, let's say, Hanover, New Hampshire, 
is ruling on the authenticity of the religious life of somebody who lives in, let's say, off the coast of Africa. It's just bizarre. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you said, these are sort of hidden, unintended or implicit theological statements that are hidden in the language of, of social science, which is meant to be purely sort of descriptive and, uh, and as the technical term would have it, non-normative. And I think that goes, as you've argued, too, and we'll, we'll perhaps get onto this as we move through our discussion, that the other approach that you mentioned of Islam's in the plural, that this seems to have come out of many anthropologists or ethnographers on the ground saying, well, we're seeing so many different things. This must be Islams. This must be, there must make them the many Islams. Rather than the, 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 the halfway house that I sometimes use is the many expressions or forms of Islam. But, but still, that too can be taken as a certain, let's say, a sort of a postmodern or a sort of a, a liberal theology as well, as well as something that perhaps is, is purely descriptive. And one of the other sort of key terms that you mentioned it was, uh, was that of, of, of discourse, the, the realm of words and discussion and indeed texts and perhaps primarily the, the Arabic tradition of, uh, of uh, the learning of the, the ulama, the, the learned cleric, so to speak, of Islam. But as many critics have pointed out, that leaves aside the, the realm of practice and, and, and the sort of the lived expression of, of Islam. And you've offered a... Um, you brought up the final term that, that I just wanted to sort of dwell on a little more, that one is perhaps really absent, sort of strangely from the discussion of Islam, at least in, in ethics scholarship. And that's, uh, at least by so many scholars, you mentioned Bruce Lincoln, of course, your own work as well. But that's transcendence, the realm that is, you know, kind of above and beyond the concerns of this world. And that somehow the, the religiosity of religion, so to speak, albeit it's helping a problematic term, but the, uh, that, that seems to be almost you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, that we don't perhaps discuss the what is perhaps for actual believers, the emic side, the, the most important element of uh, this whole uh, phenomenon. Well, quite. Um, and so thinking about the ways, the models that we had for uh, analyzing complex phenomena that had both an identity and variety, um, I bounced around and tried all sorts of things that I'm embarrassed even to mention. Um, but gradually I came to hit on one for sort of biographical reasons um, that made a lot of sense to me. And that was uh, a language that, you know, I'd grown up myself moving uh, lots of times. Uh, my father was in the military. So going from Dayton, Ohio to Montgomery, Alabama was needless to say required an adjustment in, in language. And um, then, you know, I've spent a good deal of time in the UK and so on, and I'm quite uh, amused by uh, linguistic differences among English speakers. And of course, there are those who would deny that, well, they would deny that Americans speak English, but they would certainly deny that some sort of minor functionary in India who maybe writes reports or, you know, talks to people in English, that that English is really English. But of course, no sociolinguist would, you know, give the time of day to such a such a point of view that there's an essence of English which is presumably uh, is it the Queen. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of British mockery of the accent that the Queen and her family use. So, um, the no one would defend the idea that there's a proper, correct, single way to to produce English. Um, and yet, the fact is that when I go to India you know, 
I'm speaking English to people who speak very different language to what I speak. And yet there's no doubt that we're both English speakers. Phonology is different, terminology is different. And sometimes this is amusing. Um, but the main thing to say is that somehow we recognize each other as uh, speakers of the same language. And so that led me then to think about the way in which distinction um, and unity uh, are expressed in the study of language. And so that gave me my kind of foothold uh, into the study of Islam. And, and that became the kind of master metaphor for thinking about what we're both interested in, which is Islam as it actually is, you know, Islam on the ground. Um, and I drew from certain studies of Christianity to you to, you know, employ the term lived Islam to talk about the actual Islam as we find it uh, in the world and not a theoretical construct or a kind of vivisectionist, you know, slicing off of uh, the Islam of a certain class or a certain location. So that was um, that was my way sort of out of the dilemma that I found myself in. I think that's helpful because thinking about language and the English language that, that we necessarily share in, let's say, this, this intellectual community of, of Akbar's chamber, listeners and, uh, and, and, and discussants, is, is we, we all implicitly recognise, as you say, the, the varieties of it, whether within the British Isles itself, where I come That's from. Quite... I mean, there are so many varieties of English, and I actually grew up uh, speaking a dialect that would be, I think, frankly, unintelligible in the United States, probably unintelligible online, except to speakers from that region, and, and a form of English that I had to learn to replace, at least, um, in order to be intelligible to a wider world, moving, as you would say, from, from as we'll go on to discuss with your analogy with Islam, from a dialect of the language mm -hmm. to a more standard form. And indeed, those varieties between those dialects and standard forms, whether in the US as well, people who speak Southern English and perhaps move to New York or Los Angeles or DC find themselves the subject of, of mockery, a certain set of right. assumptions. And that's similar, as we'll perhaps go on to discuss, about the recognition of different types of Islam among Muslims, but the critique as well, there's part of that recognition that you're not speaking the real version of Islam, so to speak. You're not speaking the, the correct, the educated, the worldly version of English mm -hmm. or, or by extension Islam. So we've been talking about, you know, the, the analogy, let's say, of, of, of language and the analogy of, of English that we sort of all instinctively recognize through our own experiences, whether English is the first language, a second language, or something, I often think in my case, something in between. English is both my first language in some ways, my, my second language, at least standard language is, standard English is. So, yeah, as you've suggested then, uh, at the beginning of our conversation, Islam itself, or itself, can be understood, interpreted as being like a language. So it's not a language, it's an, but we're developing this analogy here, aren't we? This, um, a model. Islam can be understood as being like a language then with distinctive dialect features and general shared features, as well as somewhat theoretical, perhaps standard features. So as we start to sort of unpack this model you've, you, you've developed so, so helpfully, to begin with, how should we understand the many different 
dialect aspects of Islam. So the, what I'm calling dialect features are the things um, or the practices, the beliefs, the attitudes that are particular to a given locale. Um, and they're often features that would surprise or even repel a Muslim from another place. So for example, uh, you know, the, the bull sacrifice uh, that's characteristic of Marabudic Islam in the Atlas Mountains, uh, a practice that's still going on as I, as I gather, um, is something that would, you know, with its uh, garlanded animals, with its prayers in both Berber and Arabic, with its um, relation to the kind of power position of the, of the local saint, um, all of those things would be seen by your average, let's say, college graduate from Egypt as being bizarre, pagan, Berber, local, but certainly not Islam. So it turns out that there are, every place we go, a whole series of features that are uh, distinctive to that place. And some of them are uh, just seen as local eccentricities, and some of them are seen as aberrations, depending very much on the Catholicism, you might say, of the, uh, of the, of the visitor. But when we read uh, pre-modern texts in particular, we have always an account of practices that the visiting Muslim did not know about that he finds, and it's always a he, finds novel and that uh, needs some kind of explanation. Uh, in general, we can say though that dialect features often focus on some aspect of the locale itself. Um, so we find, uh, and Morocco is the clearest case here, partly because we have a wonderful collection of data from a Swedish Finn named Westermark, um, that you know, a mountain, for example, can be seen as, a, a, well, we would call it a sacred place, a place of uh, baraka, um, of blessing, of grace, of power, um, that a spring or a tree uh, or anything that's somehow stands out uh, and is, is seen to be connected to power. Frequently, um, because the economy of this kind of distribution of grace uh, is realized, you might say, in the figure of saints, um, there'll be an association with a saint. But in Morocco, we can particularly see how that process takes place because often the saints have names like CD, he takes care of our needs. <laughs> CD, he fulfills wishes. Or CD, you know, CD meaning my master or saint, uh, master, good luck. And who is that? Well, it's certainly not a biographical personality, but it is to say that the concept, the Islamicized concept in this case of Baraka, um, you know, is resident in this particular, let's say, river. Also, of course, things that are powerful are powerful in a, in a literal sense are seen as in some ways religiously significant, as blessed. So the king himself, um, as the leader of the official state, the Mahzen, 
uh, is seen even by people who are in rebellion against him as a political authority, is seen, he's seen nonetheless as being uh, in some ways a sacred personage. Um, and uh, uh, likewise, there are several cases in Morocco where simply a canon is seen as sacred. Why? Because it is this huge, we don't have to be, you know, Freudians to see that it's this huge expression of power, uh, authority, and, and coercion. And so it's a place that you might go and, and ask for the solution to your problems, for success on your exams, for children when you're not producing children, and so on and so forth. So um, these features that are distinct to, uh, in, in the cases we've been citing Morocco, we can find parallels all throughout Islam. And these are not just um, uh, sacred places, although those are frequently found, but also holidays that are a big deal locally and that are associated with being a Muslim, but that are kind of hard to fit within the framework of, of, of an Islam that's found everywhere. So Shem Nassim, for example, the sniffing of the, of the air of, of the spring in, uh, in Egypt, um, uh, various kinds of uh, New Year's festivals in the Persianate part of, uh, of the world, uh, Turkey, Iran, um, and across uh, Central Asia. Um, and, uh, you know, holidays that are associated with uh, you know, mashup saints, which we see a lot in particularly India, where saints are seen as both, um, you know, Hindu, if we can use that term, and Muslim, um, or as figures that one party attributes to one group and one to another. In, in Morocco, for example, there are a number of Jewish saints who, whom Muslims venerate and ask for favors and so on, who uh, there's a very there are various stories about why they're venerating a Jewish saint, and it usually involves the fact that he was either faking it, or he was later misunderstood, or he happened to die in the Jewish quarter, and so people thought he was Jewish. But nonetheless, he's a source of power for uh, both Muslims and Jews, and so this kind of mashup um, is a feature of local Islam, and particularly troubles. Muslim reformers. So you see them throughout the Balkans, um, of course, uh, in, in, uh, in the formerly Byzantine world of Turkey and Syria, across Central Asia and so on, and certainly uh, in South Asia. So um, this, these features are the equivalent of some phrase, uh, perfectly logical grammatical tense, uh, such as, uh, as a, a friend identified for me, the future optative, which we use in Texas, which is to say, I'm fixing to finish my exam. Now, fixing to is not a form that you're gonna, the British Council is going to teach, but it expresses a perfectly good concept, which is something that I'm in the process of doing, but I have not yet actually undertaken. The will is there, yet the action is not yet. And so it's an optative that will, and it's the future. Um, there, so every, all languages have dialect features of various sorts. Some are just lexicographical. So growing up, you took a lift, I took an elevator. Um, but some of them are complex grammatical or phonological differences from the English that we teach in, in, in English for form, as a foreign language classes, but that are just part of speaking English uh, if you are in that place. Well, this in the same way, these sacred sites, these 
um, unique local practices and so on are just as much a, or more in many cases part of being a Muslim as the things that we study in our Islam classes. So it seems to me that we can't fetishize those and say that that makes these people somehow categorically distinct from, let's say, Muslims in Syria, because when you we know we have ethnographic evidence and we have travel accounts and so on. If you're a Muslim from Morocco, you recognize people in Syria as fellow travelers, right? And vice versa. So however critical you may be of these, you know, local and, and uh, idiosyncratic practices. So here was where I really found some help uh, with uh, the study of, uh, of Islam analogized to language because it solved the problem of so-called popular Islam without pretending that these practices were any less uh, Islamic than anything else. That, that's useful, isn't it? Even the, the example you gave of, let's say, you know, for the sake of an argument, I'm happy with that idea that, that American English and British English are two dialects of the same thing, to use the term. And for me growing up saying lift, a lift is a very real thing. It's not that that is wrong, just as for you growing up, it's an elevator. So similarly then, by analogy then, for the different Muslims growing up in different regions, Morocco, Syria, or wherever else, they're different dialect features. Those are just as, as real and meaningful as, as me pointing at something and saying, that is a, a lift and your point at the elevator. And I think too, it's important to, to emphasize that although you, the, the main example you gave is, is, is Morocco and partly from your own research and experience then, partly because as you mentioned, for a couple of centuries from a, a European scholarship, we have a great sort of record of all the dialect features of Islam in Morocco. But I think it's important for listeners to recognize that, that, that comparable dialect features could be found just as much in, in Egypt or indeed in Arabia itself, um, as in what, you know, what problematically have been seen as the peripheries of the Islamic world, whether Morocco or India or, or right. Southeast Asia. And indeed, I mean, you know, that's been the case for a, a, a very long time, too. I mean, as we know from the figures that we'll perhaps come on to in more detail, the critics, the Muslim critics themselves of these dialect features in one of the most famous, the medieval Syrian scholar who travels in Egypt, Ibn Taymiyyah, and, 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 and gives a theological criticism of many of these dialect features. So we know that right in Cairo in the Middle Ages, there were, there were dialect Islams. And indeed in Arabia itself, we know there was a great deal there from the great critic, founder of so-called Wahhabism, Abdel Wahhab, who write in Arabia itself, albeit in the 18th century in this case, there are many such dialect features of Islam that were nonetheless subjected to a theological criticism. But And if I may add, the, the, the James Graham has uh, done a wonderful book uh, on, um, you know, the the dialect features, although he doesn't use the terminology, of course, but dialect features of Syrian Islam. And he wants to argue that there's a separate kind of religious tradition going on that he calls agrarian religion. But um, the fact is that people recognized each other as Muslims and Christians belonging to different categories, even when they did the same practices and went to the same saints and so on. So um, there are, we're now beginning to get some historical studies. His is late 19th century. Uh, and it's just an absolutely uh, wonderful, uh, a wonderful piece of scholarship, I think. Yeah. 
And, that, and that's worth really re-emphasizing, isn't it? Because this draws up again to the problem that, that we're addressing here, that, that it seems as far as we have data and we have a great deal of, of, of data, of evidence of many different kinds from Muslim and non-Muslim uh, accounts, as far as we know, across all regions of the Islamic world, the center or the periphery, if one's to think in those, I think, problematic terms, whether from Arabia to what's now Indonesia, there have always been, as far as we know, these dialect features. And yes, and of course, this is the problem we're trying to address. Muslims still recognize one another as being Muslims, albeit as part of that recognition. There might be indeed these criticisms uh, and, and disputes as part of the shared discussion and language feature. <laughs> This brings us on then, I suppose, to the next aspect of your, your analogy or your linguistic model of in, in understanding Islam, because as well as the, the dialect aspects of Islam, there are also, of course, then these shared features that allow followers of Islam, different Muslims, like speakers of a language, to recognize having things in common, to recognize one another as Muslims. Otherwise, speakers, so to speak, wouldn't understand one another. That is, different Muslims wouldn't recognize one another as being followers of the same religion. They wouldn't be able to look past the dialect features to actually say, oh yeah, this is another Muslim. So can you explain to us what are some of those shared features and how does the, the Greek linguistic term koine help us to conceptualize them? Well, I think that the um, standard introductions to Islam are generally about the koine features. That is, if the cliche, for example, about the five pillars of Islam, these are widely found, widely adhered to, and widely recognized as being important to Muslims. There are other concepts that I think are important as well. The Quran, for example, um, the, the prophet, um, uh, the very idea of Islam itself, it seems to me, is one of these uh, shared features that Muslims use to signal to each other that they're that they are in, of the same uh, orientation. What's fascinating about this, and the reason that I like the term koine, is that um, many of these things, these common identification practices, many of them are rituals, and rituals have particular features. Um, particularly when you don't have a central uh, authority like the Vatican or something to tell you, you know, what exactly is going on. And that is that rituals themselves are quite conservative. Uh, it would not surprise me in the least if, you know, the third caliph, Omar ibn al-Khattab, were to show up at the, you know, UCLA Student Center, that he would recognize the Salat on Friday as something that was part of his religiosity as well. But while rituals themselves are conservative, interpretations of rituals are dynamic. And this opens up to me the notion that uh, these practices, these terms, these symbols are themselves fairly conservative and, and maybe even static, but there is enormous space in the process of appropriating them for localization. So the, the term koine refers to uh, a shared language, uh, but it's shared between two people who 
for whom that's not their home language, right? So the term actually arises from the Eastern Mediterranean where people from Syria, people from what we would now call the Balkans, people from what we'd now call Turkey, um, if they were dealing with each other, either commercially or intellectually used Greek, but it was not Attic Greek. It wasn't the fancy sophisticated stuff. It was Koine Greek. And the gospels, for example, are written in Koine Greek. So um, the thing about Koines is that they uh, are not a home language. And therefore, the home language tends to have a, a recognizable and discernible effect upon them. So if you hear Koine English, for example, functions as the common language of, of Indians who speak Tamil and Malayalam and Hindi and Carnatic and so on and so forth. Um, uh, but the uh, discerning person, person who's lived in India a long time or who's a native, whatever, can tell from the English that they speak whether they are natively a Tamil speaker or a Hindi speaker or a speaker of Malayalam or whatever. And so uh, what I want to argue is that the way in which these, even these the so-called five pillars are appropriated and used and interpreted varies from locale to locale. And, you know, this can easily be demonstrated in, in so many ways. Um, just the variability of interpretation. What is the, what is Salat, the, the worship five times a day, the people bowing and all of that stuff. Um, you know, my favorite example is an Algerian that I met who told me with complete sincerity that the purpose of Salat was to prevent arthritis. But now that we have aerobics, there's no need to do Salat, he said, right? Uh, and he was completely sincere. Um, and of course, that's, most Muslims would find that a ridiculous account. But the point is that it's a, a model for what goes on. So again, there are many, many examples of things that people will tell you are in the Quran, um, and they aren't in the Quran. And there are things that they will deny are in the Quran that are absolutely in the Quran. Because remember, the overwhelming majority of Muslims have no access to the Quran in Arabic itself. Right? And even you know, the average native speaker of Arabic will not find the Quran a transparent text. So there's a, sure, there's a Quran, which is a text, but there's also the Quran, which is a symbol of authority and of divine imminence. And that uh, is quite variable from place to place. So the value of seeing these not as the essence of Islam or the true features of Islam or the key elements or something like that is that if we call it a koine, we recognize that even these things that appear to be shared in common are always locally understood. And the local appropriation of these and the distinctive ways in which that's appropriated, whether it's the Quran or the Hajj or any of these things can be demonstrated very easily simply by reading uh, accounts of, of actual prayer and worship and pilgrimage and so on from people who take the practice seriously and who, you know, write about it. So I, I found that term to be useful precisely because it allows us to recognize that you and I will both uh, use the term college, for example, but that it means something different uh, for you natively than it means for me natively.
Um, and yet we would all be agree that higher education and going to college is, you know, can be a useful thing. So that's an example, it seems to me, of the kind of uh, recognition that comes from seeing these essential Islamic elements as not essential, but rather as a shared vocabulary that's locally interpreted, a koine in short. Yeah. And, and, and as, you, as you've emphasized, and I think very convincingly to my mind, uh, and I'm, I'm, I would imagine very convincingly to, to many other uh, listeners as well, is, is that, that those shared features are often ritual. There's the actual ritual features, which will have words involved. Of course, the, the, the salah, the formal Muslim worship, must be performed with Arabic words that may or may not be understood Quranic for Quranic extracts in varying degree by the people who have them, but nonetheless, they are standardized. And indeed, as you mm -hmm. said, they, although they might be the effectively the same, these rituals with the vocal Quranic elements from place to place, they will have perhaps different meanings in those different places, but they'll still be recognizable. And I think that's especially helpful because as you, as you mentioned, that the Quran itself being written in Arabic and being broadly speaking, not, not translated in the same way that the Bible, at least from the, the period of the Protestant Reformation in Europe was, was very deliberately translated into as many languages of humankind as possible. Those developments of printing and translating the Quran, making the text more accessible to ordinary believers didn't happen until much later in the, in the Islamic world. And perhaps in you know, a topic that we'll move on to when we, we talk about sort of modernity. So, so I think, again, that's really helpful. They say, well, rituals, everybody can take part in a ritual. Everybody has a, has a body and everybody has a, a, a tongue. I think we can barely agree on that, but not necessarily anyone can, can, read, can read Arabic or indeed have access even to actually a copy of the Quran, even if they could. Thus far, with, with your model, your extended analogy, you, you've presented us with dialect Islam and shared or koine Islam. But as again with languages, as we've hovered around this point, there's also a standard version. It, by extension, then, the, the Islam of books and laws that corresponds uh, metaphorically or by analogy to the somewhat theoretical version of English we find in dictionaries or grammars or perhaps taught by the British Council or in French, the Académie Française. So how should we understand this standard Islam and, and what should we make of its relationship with what you've called dialect and koine Islam? Well, the, the um, standard Islam or official Islam, if there's power behind it, um, or the term I prefer is cosmopolitan Islam, uh, is an attempt to create uh, an Islam that is precisely not local. It is something that is not characterized by sacred locales in any particular place, except for the kind of utopian locales that are connected to that um, magical period of the first uh, few decades, let's say, of Islamic practice. That is uh, the prophet's lifetime and perhaps a generation or so afterwards. But these centers are not important because they're in Arabia. They, Mecca, Medina, and possibly Jerusalem are important because they are uh, sanctified, you might say, by the Islamic event itself, 
right, by the revelation and and uh, and the kind of uh, sacred history um, that Muslims are generally aware helped to create Islam as as they know it. So um, what scholars then are doing is that on the one hand they're using a language that they share across you know the widest stretch you can possibly imagine from the Philippines, let's say the Southern Philippines, all the way to, well, Philadelphia, for example, where you have scholars who are trained in these Arabic texts that are derived, uh, that are produced by having certain sorts of skills, uh, grammatical and lexicographical skills, and certain kinds of intellectual skills that allow you to move from a particular phrase to a rule or guidance on how to live or how to think theologically or mystically or whatever. And these, uh, these uh, texts are, are embodied in many ways and certainly carried by a group of professional Muslims, right? We usually use the term scholars as an approximation of ulama, which means people who are learned but what they've learned is knowledge and not, but it's not just any old knowledge. It's not physics, it's not calculus, um, it's not you know, geology. It is the, the skills that enable you to interpret those texts. And the people who have that then are understood to have a kind of authority, an interpretive authority. Um, and this allows them then in turn to be, you might say the policeman the people patrolling the borders of Islamic practice. And frequently we find that historically, uh, one of the tasks of the ulama is to intervene in local practices that you might say have the potential to turn into uh, sectarian movements that would divide, separate Islam into different churches, right? Um, and so the, the scholars are the ones who you know, come along from usually in some sense from another place, right? They went and studied someplace. They're actually from another place, whatever. And they come in and they say, no, no, this really won't do. So you can't, you can't uh, perform Salat wearing a dhoti, which is, you know, a kind of a, what would you call it? A wrap that uh, is common in, in, in South Asia. Um, or you cannot, as people did in the Maldives, uh, women can't walk around topless, right? That should be covered according to the standard Islamic texts. Now, there are a couple of things to say is, is that these scholars um, do have these views, they do promulgate them, but a careful attention to, again, ethnographic history shows that people don't pay attention to them necessarily. So uh, the uh, Maliki, um, belonging to Maliki Sunni, a certain kind of legal school uh, fellow who was a world traveler in the Batuta, goes to the Maldives and he says, one of the things I tried to do is to get women to cover themselves above the waist. And I failed in that. Right now, these women didn't deny that they were Muslims. They just denied that this thing that this guy from Morocco was telling them to do was actually part of the Islam that they recognized. He could compel them because he was also an official. He could compel them to cover when they came to court, right? He was a judge, but outside of that, no, not at all. And uh, so 
what you see here over time is a kind of disciplining of the possibilities, uh, a pruning of certain extravagances. But, and this is important, we need to recognize that the scholars themselves, however utopian their vision, were in fact rooted in a given locale. And so we find them also participating in rituals that were local, right? Like Shem Nassim, for example, in Egypt, or like um, rituals invented to try and prevent the plague in which Jewish, Muslim, and Christian religious authorities paraded down the streets begging God for relief from the plague. Well, this is certainly not anything you'll find in a book of law, and it's certainly not something that would be recognized by a Moroccan. But uh, the Syrian scholars, the carriers of this utopian Islam, the cosmopolitans, nonetheless also lived in specific places. And their scholarship, whether it is, or their religious practice, let's say, whether it is their uh, books they write or the things that they did uh, are profoundly linked to the situation in which they find themselves. So even standard Islam, even the cosmopolitan, uh, the carriers of cosmopolitan Islam were linked to locales. And so this is, I think, uh, an important feature that's seldom recognized when we talk about um, Islamic law, Islamic scholarship, the interpretation of the Quran and things like that. That's really important, isn't it? Because yeah, we, 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 we're, we're talking for the sake of clarity about uh, dialect, koine, come shared and standard features. But, but as you're emphasizing here, these, these are more standard, but they're not wholly standard because among the ulama them, themselves, these scholars, their primary point of reference, the Quran is standard. I think we can sort of agree with that everywhere from very early in, in, at the beginnings of Islamic history. Some scholars, or at least non-Muslim scholars, would argue with that. Um, but even when we get to the next category of text, the hadith, among the, the, the ulama themselves, there's enormous debate about what are real hadith, what are real things that Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad really said and did. And indeed, there are different law schools as well, as well as the, the actual different local practices that different ulama are involved in. And then beyond that, of course, as you already hinted at, that the actual on-the-ground authority, the degree of influence that a given alim, a given scholar, has over local Muslims and local dialect Islam in any given time and place is, is enormously varied on a whole deal, variety of other contingent factors that, that ulama themselves are, are very, very aware of, which is one of the factors, I think, behind the creation of Islamic states in, in modern periods through uh, with the, 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 the um, with, based on the theories of, of some, by no means all ulama, whereas ulama, of course, have been very opposed to uh, Islamic states in modern times. But as we move on then to modern times, how has this picture, this analogy of three aspects of Islam then, the dialect, the, the shared or koine and the standard, how has this picture of three aspects of Islam been affected by what we might call modernity? That's to say by the political, intellectual and technological transformations of the past hundred years or so. Right, well, this is, it seems to me, where we really need to take seriously that we're talking about lived Islam and not about Islam as some theoretical construct. Of course, people want answers to, you know, immediate political questions. Is ISIS, 
you know, legitimate. Well, you know, I'm not sure that's a question that is going to be answered in any meaningful way by anyone other than a participant. What we can say is that there is no doubt that ISIS is Islamic, right? It's They're not referring to, you know, the Bhagavad Gita when they, you know, claim to be doing such and such a thing as a Muslim. But on the other hand, uh, what's striking to me is the very spectacle of people who are engineers like Osama bin Laden giving fatwas. And that is, I think, the distinctive feature of the of modern Islam is that lived Islam uh, is not any more uh, or is much less linked to authoritative figures. That there's a kind of Protestantization that has taken place that you can see in every Muslim student center and every Muslim chat room and so on, which is individual persons uh, who are religiously interested believe that they have a, a legitimate position that is the result of their sentiments, but also their research. And they uh, hold those positions to be authoritative. And they're prepared to argue them, even with people who you know, have gone to the Azhar or Azhar University in Cairo or something like that, one of the great religious universities. So I would say that what has happened is that locale has been replaced by something, I'm trying to think context would be a good word, the academic jargon would be positionality. Um, but that is to say that, you know, we can discern uh, kinds of Islam that are not just connected to Egypt, but that are connected to things like, are you an engineer or are you, uh, do you have a master's in uh, Arabic literature, right? Um, that are connected to, um, and this has probably always been the case, although we have such, it's so difficult to access, but certainly uh, gender and sexuality affect, uh, you know, views of Islam in ways that are sometimes predictable in some ways uh, and sometimes not. Um, but the, the, the crucial thing is this, let's suppose that you are a radical socialist, and you believe that Islam requires you to be opposed to capitalism. Now you may come to that feeling or that belief all by yourself as a, an Arab immigrant living in, let's say, Missouri. But in the 20th and 21st century, you can connect to anti-capitalist Muslims in Egypt, in Algeria. And in fact, there's a whole movement in Turkey called the anti-capitalist Muslims. And so, uh, suddenly you have communities that are parallel to the kinds of identities and locales that we referred to before as, you know, Egypt or Morocco or whatever. And we can say, you know what? Uh, locale is not as important as it used to be. And that in fact, one of the crucial features in the creation of Islamic identities is moving from one physical locale to another. So, Muslim immigration, for example, has not, is not just transforming, let's say, the United States, but it transforms all the Muslims back in the old country who are in touch with, you know, mom and dad who went to, who, you know, or son and daughter who went to, you know, Boston College and got a degree in biology, right? The family comes and visits. Um, the 
conversations that this religiously interested young woman, let's say, who's at Boston College has with fellow Muslims from all over the world, um, then are reported and uh, back to her family, let's say in Turkey or Egypt. And lo and behold, uh, you can see a clear link between uh, some particular American or some other kind of, of Islamic thought uh, and what's happening uh, in the home country. So I would say that the mobility of ideas and the mobility of persons uh, is, uh, has, has changed, you know, kind of uh, uh, the sociology of Islam in ways that couldn't have been imagined 50 years ago. Nonetheless, and this is, I guess, to me, the was an important uh, feature, was that these tools that I'm proposing, these linguistic analogs, um, have allow, allow us to see what's going on, you know, with completely modern phenomena, that is to say ISIS, for example, and we can see it as a particular dialect of Islam and, and not one that's widely of interest. Um, but we can also talk in clear ways about the changes in Islam itself over time. We can recognize the dynamism uh, of Islam, while at the same time recognizing that it is not uh, you know, a modern counterfeit, that indeed it is uh, still appropriately described as you know, being a meaningful reference when you talk about Islam in the way that it would have been in the 14th century or the 16th or the 18th or the, the 7th. So um, part of the value of these tools is that it allows us to see um, the di dynamism of Islam and recognize and, and identify exactly what it is that's going on and the ways in which uh, Islam and consequently, of course, Muslims uh, change over time. I think that's been so helpful in presenting so so clearly, Kevin, these set of interpretive tools, an analogy or, or an interpretive toolkit, really, that are showing us in so many ways that to understand this plurality of Islam or forms of practice on the ground in reality, lived Islam, that it is in so many different ways like language. Professor Kevin Reinhardt, thank you so much for speaking to us in Akbar's Chamber. My great pleasure. Thank you so much. Da 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 da